This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. War is an ancient activity, and to our sorrow, a very modern one as well. Organized violent conflict is ubiquitous in our contemporary world. Although you may not see it reported in your newsfeed, there's a global war against terrorism currently being fought in countries in Africa, Asia, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Middle East. Israel is fighting against a terrorist army supported by Iran. Other countries from Algeria and Afghanistan to Nigeria and Pakistan to the Philippines and Yemen struggle with terrorist insurgencies. There are other sources of warfare in today's world too, including civil wars and ethnic conflict, and of course, the complex war in Ukraine. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel. The future of warfare will be profoundly impacted by advancing technology, especially artificial intelligence, that's why we're so pleased to have Paul Charre with us today to talk about his new book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Paul Shari is the Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security. His first book, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, won the 2019 Colby Award and was named by The Economist as one of the top five books to understand modern warfare. Paul Shari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Paul, what's your major concern about the exercise of power in the age of artificial intelligence? I think one of the central ideas behind the book for Battlegrounds, and I've been working to understand over the last few years, is how is artificial intelligence changing global power? We saw during prior industrial revolutions that nations rose and fell on the global stage based on how rapidly they industrialized and their ability to incorporate these game-changing new technologies into their societies and into their militaries. And that's certainly true in artificial intelligence, that there's going to be huge advantages for countries that are able to capitalize on AI first to increase productivity and health and welfare, and then of course, military and intelligence applications. But one of the things that stands out during the industrial revolution was that it wasn't just that certain nations moved faster in terms of growing uh, global power, but the key metrics of power changed. Coal and steel production became key inputs of national power. Oil became a geostrategic resource that countries were willing to fight wars over. So what is that in an age of AI? What are the key inputs of national power in an age of AI? And the conclusion I come to in my book is that there are these four domains of competition, data, computing hardware, human talent, and the institutions that are needed, the organizations that take these raw inputs of data, computing chips, and human talent and turn them into useful applications. Well, now, uh, armies with advanced technologies have always had significant advantages, haven't they? 
An army with chariots had an edge over those on foot. Is our current situation qualitatively different from things that happened in the past? I think probably not, at least not in the near term. The you know, as you point out, technology is is deeply intertwined with war. And militaries have always sought to use technology to gain an edge, whether it's um, you know, a better bow and arrow or uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile. Finding ways of using technology can give a major edge in the battlefield. And one of the things that stands out historically is that what matters most is not getting there first, not having the, the technology first, or even necessarily having the best technology, but finding the best ways of using it. And I think that's going to be true in AI as well. AI is in many ways a very widely proliferated technology that's very widely available to states and to non-state actors too. And what's going to matter most is who's able to find ways to capitalize on AI and use its advantages in warfare. Uh, there's an ancient Chinese observation that all warfare is based on deception. Talk about that in the context of AI and global competition. One of the most intriguing ideas about how AI could change warfare is that it can change the psychology of war, which I think speaks to this issue of deception, for example. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution fundamentally changed the physical aspects of war. It, it dramatically scaled up the amount of firepower that militaries could bring to the battlefield. It increased their ability to leverage mass, whether it's in tanks, airplanes, artillery, ships, and then to move people and things and find ways to mass fires for destructive effects. And we saw the effect of that in World War II was um, cities were destroyed wholesale in Europe and Asia because of this increased physical destructive capacity. Now, AI is doing the same to the cognitive dimensions of warfare, to the ability of militaries to gain information about what's happening on the battlefield, process that information, make sense of it, make decisions, and then communicate within their own forces and coordinate their behaviors. And finding ways to counter that, to finding ways to thwart AI systems, to trick them and fool them and manipulate them, is going to be part of this contest as well. Everything has a countermeasure, and we see that AI systems themselves can be manipulated and fooled. And that's um, definitely going to be part of the way that AI will change warfare, is people finding ways to hack and trick AI systems themselves. Mm, that sounds very ominous. <laughs> well, there. I mean, it's a dark, yeah, it is a dark topic. It's, it's a dark topic, and it's not limited to warfare. Uh, but let's stick to warfare. What was Project MAVEN, and uh, why was it controversial and revolutionary? Sure. So Project MAVEN was the U.S. Defense Department's first project to capitalize on AI technologies coming out of the deep learning revolution. So are these sort of waves of AI progress? The field of AI dates back to the 1950s, and there's a lot of technology in militaries today that are older versions of AI. We tend not to think of them as AI today because there is this sort of phenomenon where AI is often the thing that's that's just quite hasn't been made yet. And then once people build it, they say, oh, well, that's just, that's just software. That's not AI. Um, but 
we saw around 2012 this huge explosion in the machine learning world driven prominently by deep learning, a type of machine learning that uses deep neural networks, this connectionist paradigm where there's these massive neural networks that have hundreds of billions of connections and information flows through this network, sort of loosely inspired by how brains work. Um, although it's not a, you know, it's sort of a cartoon uh, view of maybe how brains work. And uh, this technology is coming out of the commercial sector. It's not coming out of militaries. So it's very different than, say, like a stealth technology that came out of secret defense labs. Well, the U.S. military was pretty slow, quite honestly, to wake up to this tech revolution. But right around 2017, there were enough people in the right places in the Pentagon um, to, to get over some of maybe the initial bureaucratic resistance and naysaying. I mean, in particular, the Deputy Secretary of Defense at the time, Bob Work, was a big champion of AI and launched Project Maven. And it was using AI tools uh, that are called image classifiers. They are machine learning systems that are trained on images. Um, you can you know, look at giant databases, for example, of, of pictures that are labeled, sometimes millions of images. And the AI model learns to recognize objects and can say, okay, that's a cat, that's a car, that's a chair, that's a person. Well, this is incredibly valuable for the military because the military has a lot of imagery that they collect from satellites and from drones. And it's really more than people can possibly process, right? So if you have all of these drones overhead, well, you need people now looking at the drone video footage to do something useful with it. And that's very human intensive. It's very costly. So the military launched Project Maven to bring in this technology and then apply it to um, a really important problem for the military. Uh, what became controversial was that it came out later that Google was one of the companies involved in Project Maven. And Google had not communicated this widely to their employees. Obviously, those working on the project knew, but it was not widespread knowledge. And several thousand Google employees wrote an open letter protesting working on the project, saying they didn't want to be working with the military. And ultimately, Google discontinued their work on the project. They completed the contract, but that did not renew. And that caused a huge uh, firestorm of criticism in Washington, where national security leaders were very alarmed that a U.S. company might say they refuse to work with the U.S. government on this critical technology. And a lot of U.S. leaders pointed out that um, you know that wouldn't be the case in China, that Chinese tech companies uh, certainly weren't going to stand up and say, we refuse to work with the Chinese Communist Party. If they do that, they'll be, they'll be thrown in jail. Um, now, in, in practice, I think we've seen that actually a lot of major tech companies Amazon, Microsoft, and even eventually Google have come back to working with the U.S. military. Um, but it certainly was a very controversial issue at the time. And did uh, Project Maven get renewed? So Project Maven continues. Um, and you know, it's, it's not something that the Defense Department has been very public about, but it's certainly the project itself continues. Google was not the only company involved. Um, and so there was a smooth transition to, to other companies. Um, the work is is technically impressive, talking to, to individuals that are involved with it. Um, I think one of the challenges that the military faces is a couple of things. One is just scaling this kind of innovation across what is a massive 
massive enterprise in the U.S. Defense Department. It's an $800 billion a year organization. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous number of people and components of DOD. And so, you know, that that's kind of one solution to one problem. But to really capitalize on AI, if you think of AI as like another industrial revolution, well, you need to be industrializing, um, you need to be intelligentizing, to use a term that the Chinese military uses, across your entire military, not just one particular solution. And the, the US military has really struggled with that. Uh, Maven is a success story, but there's there's not a lot of other similar success stories, unfortunately. But then there's also a parallel problem of, it's just one thing to get the technology. What we see time and again, historically, is that the real game-changing advantages come when you change how you operate because of that technology. When the technology enables you to not just be more efficient, but to operate differently. And that's hard for organizations. That's hard for people to do that. And it's particularly difficult for militaries. Um, and I think that's that's an issue that also the U.S. military hasn't really cracked yet. And um, I imagine the size of the U.S. military and the very size of the Department of Defense works against rapidly changing the way things are done. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so one of the key battlegrounds of competition here is in institutions. It's the ability, in part because AI technology is so widely available. There are tools that are available for free online and data sets that anyone can download and use. And U.S. competitors like China have world-class AI companies. I mean, China has said their goal is to be the global leader in AI by 2030. And I take them seriously at that. Uh, China's not a leader in the basic research behind AI. Like the very best cutting-edge AI models come out of U.S. companies like OpenAI, for example. But they proliferate very, very rapidly. And um, China's not, really, not very far behind at all, the United States. And so what matters... Um, a lot in this competition is having institutions that can take these raw inputs and turn them into useful applications. And we've seen the U.S. military innovate from an organizational standpoint, creating new organizations over the last seven or eight years, like the Defense Innovation Unit, for example. It's the Defense Department's outpost in Silicon Valley, and its sole job is to bring in commercial technology into the military and to do that very, very quickly. And they've been able to break the mold on kind of a small scale where they can bring in um, companies that maybe don't normally work with the military and bring them in contract very, very quickly to solve you know, specific solutions. But scaling that up across the entire organization is very, very challenging. Um, but the reality is you, know, you can't build AI, you can't even really build software the way that you build aircraft carriers. The military needs a different organizational model for doing that, and it's something they've, they've continued to struggle with. Uh, which brings to mind, uh, in, in Four Battlegrounds, you mentioned the importance of cognitive technologies and human-machine teaming. Can you give us some examples of how the concepts are already being applied or might be applied in the near future? Yeah, I think this is a really critical aspect for how we think about AI, frankly, not just in the military, but in all aspects of society, which is to say that right now, the human brain remains the most advanced general purpose cognitive processing system on the planet. Um, now, look, there are companies like OpenAI has said explicitly, their goal is to create 
super intelligent AI that's that's vastly more powerful than humans. So, you know, I don't want to say that's going to be true forever. Who knows what, what might be possible in the future. But that's true today that even general purpose systems like GPT-4 or Google's Gemini Ultra, um, you know, which which people can interact with, these large language models like ChatGPT, they're pretty general purpose. They can do a whole wide range of things, but they have still a lot of limitations compared to people. And so when we think about how to use these tools, the most constructive paradigm is really to think about human machine teaming, um, that we're not looking at just using AI or people, but using them together in a team and finding the best way to balance the benefits of AI and humans and leverage the advantages of each of them. And in particular, AI systems are often better at speed, at precision, um, at reliability, when you have something that is very well-defined and repeatable. So for example, one of the experiments that the US military did over the last 10, 15 years was the US military built an uh, unmanned or uncrewed drone a prototype stealth drone called the X-47 that was designed to land on an aircraft carrier. And it would take off and land autonomously, and it would be directed by humans where to go, but really fly itself all on its own. So it's not remotely piloted the way some drones are today, where someone's sort of flying it, sitting in a trailer using a, a joystick. Um, well, you know, one of the interesting challenges for humans is landing on an aircraft carrier that's moving at sea, you know, at night perhaps, uh, when the seas might be rough. That's very, very challenging. And for naval aviators, aviators, that's a point of pride in terms of their ability to, to do carrier landings. Obviously, doing that safely is absolutely critical. Um, and for the drone, it's, it's a trivial task. It's, in fact, so trivial that when they designed the system... They had to vary the landing spot on the drone because otherwise the drone is so precise that when it was landing on the runway, the tail hook was digging a divot into the runway because it was landing in exactly the same spot. Wow. And that's a, just, just a phenomenal degree of precision, right? So there's lots of things in life where it's incredibly valuable um, in things like you know, cars, automatic braking. Um, is incredibly valuable that that machines can react with better speed and precision than than humans. In the military context, there is a um, autonomous system on some crewed aircraft, aircraft that like an F sixteen that have people inside them that are piloting them. That at the, is an automatic ground collision avoidance system. So if the pilot blacks out because of of g forces. At the very last minute, if the airplane is about to crash into the ground, the autonomous system takes control and it rights the airplane and saves the, the pilot. And there have been instances where this has saved lives. And so that's a place where we want to use automation. But then there are other things where the AI is not good enough yet, and it might struggle for a while. And we want humans to be making those kind of decisions. In ordinary civilian life, we worry about uh, AI and misinformation and disinformation. How have those two things impacted modern conflict? And more importantly, how can nations respond effectively? Well, we're certainly seeing a flood of AI-generated content, including AI use for misinformation and disinformation. 
In the geopolitical context, there's several things that experts worry about. Uh, one is certainly AI used to manipulate elections. I think that's a, a very big concern. We're coming up on um, a number of elections this year around the world, um, but also the use of AI to manipulate geopolitical events. So we're entering now the third year of the war in Ukraine. And early on in the war, there was a deep fake released of Ukrainian President Zelensky saying uh, to lay down your arms, telling Ukrainian people to surrender to the Russians when they were invading. Now, this was very quickly debunked, uh, but it's an example of the kind of thing that people are concerned about, that there could be an international crisis and there could be some uh, fake video or audio that's released that might create confusion, that even if in the long run it gets debunked, if it creates hesitation or even maybe excuses for people to ignore some problem or to drive a wedge between allies, um, that could be problematic. And so I think that's you know just one example of the many ways that AI is going to make disinformation a lot more complicated. Yeah, a lot harder to discriminate truth from lie. Uh, exactly. the, the concept of uh, gray zone uh, conflicts is becoming increasingly relevant. They blurring the lines between peace and war. How does your book address the challenges and maybe opportunities presented by the ambiguous conflict scenarios? Yeah, there's, um, you know, I think there is this phenomenon, certainly in the United States, where I think in part because the U.S. military is very powerful in a traditional sense where there's often this sort of very rigid binary distinction between sort of war and peace. And then adversaries look for ways to get around that, to find ways to circumvent um, you know, the, the traditional strength that a military might have. Um, and AI is certainly going to play a role there as well. One of those could be in information warfare and tools like disinformation. Another could be in cybersecurity. There was just information released in the past week that OpenAI talked about hackers from Russia, China, um, and Iran that had used their system, GPT-4, to help accelerate some of the things that they were doing as they were developing computer exploits and sending out phishing emails, which is an interesting insight into how some of these AI tools might help on that front. Um, there is concern among some experts that these AI tools could enable the development of biological weapons, which have uh, to date really not been used by nation states as uh, major tools of warfare. There is a biological weapons convention banning them, um, but perhaps more, more relevant to actually restraining state behavior. Biological weapons are, are very hard to make and they're very hard to control. So if you, you know, we all just live through a global pandemic, you can't control where the virus spreads and that um, is a restraint on states using this. But one concern is that AI tools might either make possible to build biological weapons that are more targeted, um, which would certainly be, be very concerning, or simply lower the bar to building these tools. And there might be some groups that don't care if they're, they're used terrorist groups or, or apocalyptic cults that they don't care if it causes widespread devastation. They might still be in line with their goals. Well, for people who do care, uh, I, I imagine most of us would agree that the best approach to war is prevention or deterrence. Uh, the idea of deterrence is being 
challenged in this, uh, this era of conflict. Talk about how your research might offer some insights into how nations can deter adversaries and prevent conflict in the first place. Sure, there's some interesting work that came out of a group at Carnegie Mellon that spun out of the team that developed the AI system that achieves superhuman performance in poker. And um, like like many games, chess and, and Go, poker also fell to AI um, you know, in the last several years. And the team took that sort of engine behind the poker AI, which is just really good at exploring a vast space of possibilities and um, evaluating these in a probabilistic way, and has turned that now towards analyzing strategic investments and interactions between militaries. So in the defense space, analysts do this a lot, where they game out different scenarios. They hold war games, where they sort of explore, okay, um, you know, if China were to invade Taiwan, what would happen? How would that invasion look and how would the U.S. respond? Or they might look at investments and say, okay, if uh, right now we're seeing, for example, China is rushing ahead in their investments in nuclear weapons, rapidly increasing their nuclear stockpile, that is quickly moving us toward a tripolar nuclear world where China will have a large nuclear arsenal similar to the United States and Russia, which has new problems of strategic stability. Um, so is there a way to have a stable situation where we avoid a nuclear arms race among these three powers? And one of the things that AI can do is uh, make it possible to explore large numbers of scenarios, much more than might be possible with people, where you put a bunch of people around a table and take a day and do a war game. It's hard to scale that in a big way. Maybe you could take two days and do two different scenarios but you probably can't explore 2 million scenarios. And yet with AI, you actually can do that. And so that's one way that it might be possible to then better understand, okay, if I make these moves, how might my adversaries counter and respond? And how can we find a stable equilibrium and one that doesn't lead to arms races or that leads to war? Now, that's a very interesting idea because AI might be able to imagine some scenarios that human beings just don't consider. Is that right? That's exactly right. In fact, we see that in many settings where AI has been used in various types of gaming type environments or competitive environments. So that's true in chess, for example, where AI agents are not just better than humans at chess, they play differently and they've come up with new opening moves, new sequences that human grandmasters had never thought of. And now humans are studying these. Or in one of my favorite examples, there was an AI agent that was trained for the military as part of a program by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, what's sometimes been called the uh, Department of Mad Scientists within the US military. They're and great. they do a lot of scientific experimentation. And they had a contest called Alpha Dogfight. So taking a page from AlphaGo, for example, where companies trained AI agents to compete in a simulated dogfight. And they went head to head. And then the winner got to go against a human. And uh, the winning competitor here, which came from a small AI startup called Heron Systems, which beat out Lockheed Martin in the finals, um, they went head to head against a human and absolutely crushed the human pilot, uh, an experienced Air Force pilot. 12 to zero, the pilot didn't get a single shot on this AI in a simulator. And 
Uh, one of the things that's really interesting here is the AI agent wasn't just better, but it fought differently. It used different tactics than humans use. So one of the things that the AI did was when the aircraft are circling each other in a dogfight, there is a moment when the aircraft are head to head, when there's a split second opportunity to get off a gunshot. And it requires superhuman degrees of precision. It's very difficult for humans to do this. And in fact, it's banned in training to even try this because the aircraft are racing at each other head to head at hundreds of miles an hour, and they risk a collision. The pilot is, is not focused on avoiding a collision. But the AI could, could make this shot. It could do it while avoiding a collision. It can do both those at the same time. That's not a problem. But even more interesting, the AI learned to do this entirely on its own. It wasn't programmed to do this. It came out of its training process that the AI discovered this tactic. Now, humans have heard of this tactic. I mean, they know it exists. It's just really difficult for humans to do. But the AI learned this entirely on its own. And I think it's an example of the um, ways in which AI systems will find new ways of solving problems. Uh, and finally, Paul, we mentioned terrorism a few times during our conversation, and and global conflict is increasingly influenced by non-state actors. So as these emerging technologies become more accessible, there's great concern of their proliferation to non-state actors. How do you see the role of these technologies in the hands of terrorists or other bad actors affecting the dynamics of the four battlegrounds? Well, I think it's a real concern. Um, you know, the, the AI technology is pretty widely available today, and it proliferates very rapidly. And right now, the most advanced AI systems, which are not widely shared, they are closely held by some of the leading AI companies, They've demonstrated the ability to be useful in aiding in the development of chemical and biological weapons and in cyber attacks. And their abilities are not huge leaps and bounds above what might be possible without them today, but these AI systems are getting better and they're getting better very, very quickly. And we can see this in the field of disinformation, for example, where you know a few years ago, AI-generated video or images were terrible. They were weird and they, they didn't look realistic at all. And now they're exceptionally realistic and very convincing. And the same with text. If you go back just five years ago, AI-generated text was okay, but not great. And today it's very compelling. And so if that progress continues, we could see AI systems that are a million times more powerful, not in a, in a general sense, I mean like an actual quantitative sense, have a million times more effective computing power than the current state-of-the-art systems by the end of this decade, the late 2020s or early 2030s. Um, and that's going to enable lots of great things, lots of wonderful scientific inventions and improvements in healthcare and other applications. But it unfortunately is also likely to enable bad people to do bad things. And we need to be thoughtful about how to counter that because we don't want to end up in a, a boat where we are today with disinformation where the tools are widely available. And we've actually had a couple of years of warning that this was coming. We didn't do much as a society. And now we're having to deal with the consequences. And so we need to find ways to, how do we um, limit the proliferation of some of these systems where possible, slow their spread, make them less harmful for say, cyber or chemical or biological attacks, 
And then how do we start putting in place defenses in society against some of these risks? We need more creative human thinking on our parts. The book Indeed. is Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff.